My Father, it is amazing love that you have shown to us. You tell us this yourself. See how great a love that you have bestowed on us that we should be called your children and that we should be called your children through the gift of your Son. And these are indeed expressions of profound glory and amazing love that call us to trust you, to follow you, to walk holy before you. And I pray that that would be what you produce in us, Holy Spirit, as you abide in your children and as you point us always to the Son and to the Father and to your word, which we now turn our attention and we ask you to please open it up to us. Be our teacher. You are our teacher. Enlighten our eyes that we may behold the glory of God in the face of Christ and teach us anew and refresh in us the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it is to this end that we pray that you might be exalted in our hearts and in our lives as your people. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look, because it is Easter, it is Resurrection Sunday, uh, out of a section of Scripture, verses 12 through 19 of this most extended discussion on the resurrection in, in all of Scripture. And that is in 1 Corinthians 15, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. The resurrection is, of course, as we know and has already been stated, the so central truth of the Christian religion. Without the resurrection, then we have no gospel, we have no Christ, we have no salvation, we have no hope, we have no kingdom. So the most glorious and central reality of the Christian faith, of the declaration of Scripture and of the person and work of Jesus Christ, is that he not only died an atoning death, but that he rose from the grave. That he rose from the grave. This is a glorious truth. The greatest threat to us as fallen human beings, so to humanity at large, is that death is a reality that faces us all. Death, of course, is the result of sin. I was just in these conversations and I'm reminded recently even with the passing of my father and seeing my mom go through the, the grief process that, that death is unnatural. And we all have experienced that with death of loved ones, that it was not part of God's original design. Death is an intruder. Death is an enemy. He calls it an enemy. We read it earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed. So to experience the reality of death is to experience something that is grievous because it is unnatural. It's a consequence of sin. It's a consequence of our rebellion. It is, in fact, a punishment, as it were, because of the fall of our first parents. And so it is the greatest threat that faces all of us, and it's natural to grieve. It also has a certain amount of fear incumbent in it. It is the fear of the unknown for many. It is the fear of the reality of the unknown in light of our sin. Death makes us, reminds us that everything in this world is temporary and ultimately has no lasting value in and of itself. This is the whole point of a book of a Bible. Do you know which one? The book of Ecclesiastes. Life is vanity, all is vain in light of the fact of the temporary nature of this world. 
So to live in this life without a vital trust in Christ means that this world is, for any who are unbelieving, the best you will ever know. Of course, for believers, no matter what happens here, good or bad, it is the worst we will ever know. The best is yet to come. So because death is a reality, world religion is basically an attempt of man in their fallen condition to come up with some answer for death, some answer for the problem of our own disobedience or sin, although it's not always called sin, but for our failures and for our weakness. And so man has come up with a variety of ways to deal with the issue of death. Some religions teach incarnation. We just keep going through these cycles and hopefully if we do well, more good than bad, then we increase our state, we increase our experience in the next life. Some teach that we're just absorbed into the great divine being, the of the universe. That's why they meditate. That's the great end of all, this impersonal existence and the great divine and ultimate reality of all. We're just absorbed back into that. Some teach that. Some have just a, some vague spiritual state of nothingness or general thoughts more commonly in our culture of being in a better place where the deceased are doing the things they like to do here and they're looking down on those of us who they loved. Many people who say those things, they, many said it recently in our family, and again, many of you were in that uh, same situation, and it's well-meaning, well-intentioned people, but it's really an empty statement. It doesn't mean anything. It provides no comfort at all. They're not up there looking down on us. They're not, in fact, interested in what we're doing here. Those who have died and gone before us, they are either in a place of torment or they are in the presence of the glory of Christ. What happens here is no longer their central concern. But it is a vague idea that sometimes is meant as a way of finding comfort. In the first century, a common religious idea was that of dualism. And it taught that essentially whatever is spiritual is inherently good and whatever is physical or material, the body, is inherently evil. And there's all kinds of ways that that worked itself out within Greek philosophy and in ancient religion and so forth. But the idea of a resurrection didn't fit into that idea. Why would you want to bring back what is inherently evil? So to die was to shed ourselves of this bad material material existence and enter into a superior state, a superior spiritual existence. Uh, One old writer, Barclay, notes that the ancient Roman philosopher Seneca said, when the day shall come which shall part this mixture of divine and human here where I found it, I will leave my body myself, I will give it back to the gods. In other words, I will be shed of this physical existence. And so the idea of a physical bodily resurrection from the dead was ludicrous. It was not, uh, it was something strange to the ears uh, of man for throughout the history of the world and particularly in the context of the gospel. Now there were resurrection ideas, there were concepts of resurrection of life after death, of course, Uh, among men and among religions, but there was not the idea that each individual would be physically raised from the dead in a real body, in in fact a glorified version of the body that they left in this world to live forever with God. That was something utterly unique. And that's why when Paul preached to the philosophers and the Greek philosophers in ancient Greece, when he spoke of the resurrection of the dead, it says some in Acts 17, 32 began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this, and some actually followed him. 
It was for many, however, an offensive and a ridiculous and a ludicrous idea, this idea of a resurrection from the dead. In fact, an ancient opponent, a third century opponent of Christianity, Christianity named Celsus, said this in his attack against the gospel and that proclamation of Christ raised from the dead. How can those who have died rise with their identical bodies? Really, it is the hope of a worm. For what soul of a man would wish any longer for a body that had rotted? Well, of course, that's a total mischaracterization of the idea of the resurrection of those who are in Christ, which is not with the exact same body that went into the grave, but is one which Paul explains later in 1 Corinthians is imperishable and is spiritual and is a body of glory. But in contrast to all of these ideas and more could be added, the physical bodily resurrection from the dead is the central proclamation of the Christian faith. That Christ physically and bodily rose from the dead and those who are his will physically and bodily rise from the grave. It encompasses the very authority and sufficiency of scripture, the reality of the person and the work of Christ, and even the sanity of any sacrifice for Christ in this world. The resurrection of the dead is central to our faith. And yet, surprisingly, even among those who are professing Christians, the resurrection is relegated to an optional doctrine or outright denied. One, just a few examples here, Brian McLaren, who is a part of the leader in the emerging church, suggested this in one of his writings. I must add, though, that I don't believe making disciples must equal making adherence to the Christian religion. It may be advisable in many, not all, circumstances to help people become followers of Jesus and remain within their Buddhist, Hindu, or Jewish context. In other words, this great central proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on which Christianity stands or falls is a slough-off kind of doctrine. I take it or leave it. It's not central to the message. And of course, liberal theology has long denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, only, not only in its historicity, but in its necessity. Liberal seminaries and wings of major denominations that profess the Lord Jesus Christ deny the very possibility of miracles and therefore the miracle of all miracles, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Some putting it even into the category of a mere legend that developed among early Christianity that gained ascendancy throughout the history of the church and became a part of Christian doctrine. But never does it have any bearing in the reality of history and actual facts. So the resurrection is denied by those outside of the church. It is denied by those within the church in terms of the professing church of Jesus Christ by many. But the resurrection is not an optional doctrine. Again, it is a doctrine on which our very hope stands. If there is no resurrection, then we have no hope, as Paul is going to make clear for us in this passage this morning. Namely, as he looks at the foolishness of denying the resurrection in light of what it claims and affirms about the person of work of Jesus Christ, how it affirms the witness of Scripture, the eyewitnesses of men, and the very apostolic preaching of the gospel. So let's look at that just briefly this morning as we prepare our hearts for the table. And we'll look at it in three big categories. First, the absurdity of denying the resurrection. The absurdity of denying the resurrection. The consequences of there not being a resurrection, of no resurrection. 
and the reality of life in light of the resurrection. Let me begin by just reading our passage. You can read with me verses 12 through 19, and then we'll look at it more closely. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Look back first up at verse 12 and let's just notice this. The absurdity of denying the resurrection. The absurdity of denying the resurrection. And the most glaring absurdity is right at the beginning is that It is the very message of the resurrection that was preached and proclaimed to this Corinthian church and to all of the first century world by the mouth of the apostles. It is the message that is believed. So to deny the resurrection denies the very message that these Christians were claiming to have accepted at the preaching of the apostles. The absurdity and shocking nature of the claim is in the fact that it flies in the face of What brings them their very identity as the church of Jesus Christ? Now, some suggest that they weren't denying the resurrection of Christ, but they were actually denying the resurrection of the body of Christians, which is very possible since Paul has to make that connection for them and he repeats the logical connection for them that if there is no resurrection of the dead, which is a categorical statement, then Christ is included in that and then Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. So he's helping them see the absurdity of their own position if they claim that there is no resurrection of the body. Then that would include Christ. And if you don't have Christ raised, then you have no gospel. You have no Christianity, at least in any meaningful kind of sense. And so it's striking at the very outset that Paul is having to write this to the church of Jesus Christ. He's not writing to pagan believers who denied the resurrection of the dead. He's writing to the church to remind them of the absurdity of denying the resurrection of the dead. And interestingly, it is the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of Christ in some manner or form that was a common part of false teaching in the early church. It's something that has been addressed many times in the New Testament. You can remember in 2 Thessalonians, Paul has to give instructions to the church to encourage them that some letter that was supposedly written by him was in fact a false letter and this letter was denying that this day of the Lord uh, was yet still in the future, this day of the Lord, which would include the resurrection of the dead. Paul had to address false teachers in 2 Timothy who were going around saying that the resurrection had already happened. In chapter 2, verse 17 through 18, he says, uh, If we're worldly and empty chatter, it'll lead to further ungodliness. Their talk will sped like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection had already taken place, and they are upsetting the faith of some. 
In 1 Thessalonians 4, he had to remind them that the resurrection was still a future event. And those who were dead did not miss out on it. That they would again be raised with everyone else when they meet the Lord in the air. Those who have died in Christ. So the point is, is that the resurrection was under attack from many different angles, even within the early church, and needed to be defended. And so it is here in his letter to the Corinthians. And Satan is at most work at work within the church of God. He is the God of this world, to be sure. But Satan's main objective from the garden in, uh, with Adam and Eve to the garden with Christ, trying to get him to uh, abandon his mission He is at work in the church to confuse doctrine, to destroy sound doctrine. False doctrine is what he finds as his greatest tool to both upset the faith of some and to destroy the faith of others. And so here he is ultimately behind even this argument here that there is no resurrection of the dead. And the fundamental error that Paul brings up points out here is this, as I've already mentioned, is that death came through sin in Adam and life can only come in Christ. That's what he's going to say in verses 21 through 22. We read it. For since by a man came death, also by also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will be made alive. So he says there's two categories of people. There are those who are in Adam, still in their sin, and there are those who are in Christ who have experienced the reality of life. And that promise of life in Christ is fundamental to our hope. It's fundamental to our hope. Again, there is no Christianity without this truth of the resurrection. And the reality is that Christ did not die for himself. He didn't live for himself. He didn't rise for himself. Everything that Christ did was for us, for his people, those he came to redeem. So to be in Christ means this, is the, is the larger point here, is that to be in Christ means that our destiny is bound up with his destiny. Our life is bound up with his life. What happens to him is ultimately what our future holds. And so if there is no resurrection of the dead, then the whole thing is just a farce. He didn't rise. We won't rise. And again, there is no gospel. There is no gospel. And so the idea of the resurrection of the dead is central to the proclamation. It's central to the proclamation of the gospel. And to deny it is absurd. It is absurd. And it is really quite an amazing statement here. Uh, Really a rather arrogant statement. To categorically say there is no resurrection of the dead is the statement to be accepted a priori. In other words, just on its own as absolute, as above all else, as a statement of fact. Yet to even state that fact would require omniscience. It would require a knowledge that was greater even than that of the apostles who witnessed him. This is a common among atheists or agnostics, as we already said, and liberal theologians who simply say out of hand that miracles don't happen as if they have seen every work of God in every place of this world throughout all of human history and can say categorically that there are no miracles and that there is no resurrection of the dead simply because 
it goes against anything that's been experienced in one's own personal life. In other words, because we haven't observed it, therefore it isn't true. There is no resurrection of the dead. But again, this flies in the face of the actual proclamation of the gospel and the evidence that Paul has already laid out. There's the evidence of Scripture. There's the evidence of the empty tomb. There's the evidence of the united testimony of the apostles. There's the evidence of the 500 at one time, many of whom were still alive and could be tested and questioned and examined and asked about this. There's the evidence of the women at the tomb. There's the evidence of the sending of the Spirit. There's the evidence of the formation of the church as Jesus had promised. Every testimony of God is pointed to this reality of the resurrection of the dead. And here these come plain saying absolutely that there is no resurrection of the dead and therefore discrediting scripture, the apostles, the church, the work of the spirit and the whole, the whole account of the work of God in Christ, which is the height of, the height of arrogance. That Christ died for our sins, as Paul said, is of first importance and that he rose from the dead is central to the proclamation of our salvation. But then he moves on and he says, not only is it absurd to deny the resurrection because it is the very center of the message that you have believed and because it is on the very truth on which Christianity stands or falls and because it flies in the face of all of the evidence, it is absurd to deny the resurrection because of the consequences of no resurrection. And so he begins... In verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. Our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. The first thing it does then is it empties the entire content of faith. The use of the word vain here is striking. It means empty, without substance, without meaning, vacuous. That is the per se then, the proclamation of Christ. And your faith is empty, baseless, devoid of reality or purpose if Christ has not been raised from the dead. It means everything that we have hoped in is in fact meaningless. Meaningless. If Christ was defeated, then the promise that death was swallowed up in victory, which John read earlier today, is a false promise. And again, death still reigns. It means that Christ then was subject to the power of death in the same way that we are. That he died like any other man. That he was impotent to defeat death like any other man. That he was no stronger than any of the fallen angels or any of God's Prophets or any of God, the people who have ever claimed to be a spokesman for God, he was subject to the reality of death like anyone else. And then the proclamation then becomes meaningless. He cannot be the author of our salvation if he himself was defeated by our last enemy. Death still remains our enemy. Death still reigns and not Christ. So it only has value the gospel message if Christ was raised from the dead. The object of our faith only has meaning, has any purpose or value if Christ was raised from the dead. And this is actually striking on a few different levels. Not only because of the foolishness of emptying the content of the gospel from anything meaningful, 
But we find this in a, in, a, in a way even today, and that is in this. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then the preaching of the gospel is in vain. It's empty and it's vacuous and we have no hope. And in that way then, what becomes supreme is not so much that the proclamation of the gospel is true, which he's going to address in just a moment, but it becomes then faith, almost this entity of itself that has its own kind of power. In other words, it's not so important then that Christ was raised from the dead. It is just important that we have an element of faith, that we just have faith, that we have faith that things are going to work out good in the end, that things will still be better in the end, that our sacrifice is okay because our faith assures that it will be okay. But what does that mean exactly is what he's forcing us to look at. And we hear this all the time, don't we? Even within the church, if you watch most Christian movies, what do you hear most of the time? What is it about? Is it about the risen Christ or is it about having faith? Having faith. If you listen to those who try to represent Christianity on TV very often, it's about having faith. About having faith. You've got to have faith. Faith in what? Faith in what? It's not just merely a matter of having faith, but the content of our faith is everything. The object of our faith is everything. This way of spirituality or religion often is presented in places as if the individual's faith and not the content of that faith is what is ultimate. That the content isn't nearly as important that the individual himself has a strong sense of personal expression of faith. A strong sense of believing. If you go to AA, Alcohol's Anonymous, Their idea is that you have faith. It doesn't really matter what you believe in. You could believe that tree is your God that will help you stop drinking or doing whatever destructive behavior that you have. It's not so much the object of the faith, but just that you have faith. Just that you have faith in God. So, therefore, Catholicism is the same as Protestantism, which is the same as Buddhism, which is the same as Hinduism, which is the same as anything else, because you just got to have faith. You just got to have faith. Paul challenges that notion for us in all of Scripture and says, no, if you don't believe in the right content and if you don't have the right hope, then your faith is in vain. Your faith is worthless. It's not a matter of simply having faith as if faith itself were some kind of work or if faith itself were some kind of the end of all that was required of us. But it's faith in God. It's faith in his proclamation of his work in Christ. It's faith in his promises in Christ. It's faith in his atoning death. It's faith in his resurrection of the dead. It's faith in everything that he's declared in Scripture. It's faith in the return of Christ to establish his kingdom. If you take that away, then the content of everything is destroyed. We're going to remember this later in the Lord's table where it says this. Uh, We'll read it later. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The whole promise of the new covenant is made empty. There is no return of the physical Christ, the bodily resurrected Christ, if there is no resurrection of the dead. 
The reality of the forgiveness of sin is removed. The promise of the Holy Spirit is removed. The hope of the coming kingdom is removed. If there is no resurrection of the dead. Then anything that we have hoped in becomes empty. It becomes vain. It becomes vacuous. There is no hope of future justice. There is no hope of future reward. There is no hope of reconciliation with God. There is no certainty of the new heavens and the new earth. If there is no resurrection of the dead, if there is no resurrection of Christ, then all of these promises are robbed of their substance. Even more than that, it destroys the whole apostolic witness. Look what he says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain, your faith is vain, everything you've hoped in is vain. Moreover, he says in verse 15, we have been found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he has raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. In other words, it makes the apostles Paul, Peter and the rest false witnesses. And in so doing, it destroys the very foundation of Scripture. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, then we have no word of God that is trustworthy. We have no witness, an apostolic witness of God. We have no new covenant scriptures. We have no no hope that's grounded in anything. In fact, they have been found to be liars. It destroys the Old Testament authority, the authority of the Old Testament. Paul began this section by saying that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose according to the scriptures. According to the hope of God's people, all of that is destroyed if there is no resurrection of the dead. The promise of Daniel 12, too, that those who are in the ground shall rise either to life of blessing or to judgment is meaningless. The words and the hope of Job in Job 19, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I still see God, is meaningless. It's a false witness. It's as if If it's not as God said it would be in Scripture, then how can we trust anything? If all of what is said is merely a false witness or a nice thought, then everything becomes a farce. It becomes a joke. If Christ did not rise, then the prophetic word is made meaningless. It's made meaningless. And this is just as an important connection here is for those who want to hold that Scripture is true in its general spiritual message, but wrong in historical facts, and that that really isn't as important. Uh, That doesn't hold. Because either Scripture is given to us by God and is the Word of God in every jot and tittle, as Christ said, and even He fulfilled every jot and tittle of Scripture, or Scripture is meaningless. We cannot take a part of Scripture and disregard any part of it and still have the authoritative Word of God. And here, we cannot disregard any part of the message that was preached by these apostles, particularly that of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and have any trustworthy Word from God. Scripture is true in all of its parts. When it speaks historically, it is true historically. When it speaks to anything scientifically, it is true about that scientifically. If it speaks to anything about the nature of our hope, it is absolutely true because every word is given to us by God. It destroys the very preaching of the gospel at its outset. 
when Peter preached the gospel in Acts chapter 2, the first New Covenant sermon, he preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. According to the Old Testament scripture, He said, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, quoting the Old Testament, I saw the Lord always in my presence. He is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades and nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and that his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah. He was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up against, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Wipe that off the mat if there is no resurrection of the dead. David's hope was false. The Psalms were false. The prophecy was false. The witness of the apostles is false. There is no Holy Spirit. There is no promise. There is no Messiah. There is no certain hope. There is no forgiveness. If there is no resurrection from the dead then all of that becomes meaningless. It destroys New Testament authority. It destroys New Testament authority. Indeed, he just said that he would be false witness. And so when Paul charges these false apostles in 2 Corinthians of coming in and being agents of Satan and being false apostles and workers of Satan appearing as angels of light, Paul would have to put himself in that category too. When he says to the Ephesians that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, forget it, there is no church. When he tells Timothy that the church is the pillar and the support of the truth, wipe it out, there is no pillar and support of the truth. Why? Because every witness to the reality of God and of Christ and of the gospel is now relegated in the category of false witness, of a deceitful worker. There is no church, there is no Christ, there are no scriptures, There is no word from God, there is no hope, there is no gospel, there is no kingdom. There is no way to discern the spirit of Antichrist from the spirit of God because there is no measure of truth by which to gauge those claims. For Paul himself would be a false witness of God if in fact there is no resurrection of the dead. Another consequence is it destroys the hope of salvation. We're found, he says, Christ has not been raised and our preaching is vain. Your faith is vain. We're found to be false witnesses of God. So it destroys the whole apostolic witness and the whole Old Testament and New Testament witness becomes vain and pointless. And then he says, 
If the dead are not raised, and if Christ has not been raised, in verse 17, you are still in your sins. You are still in your sins. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then it damns all people to condemnation. There is no longer any hope. The whole hope of the gospel is that Christ was sacrificed for our sins. There is an atonement provided in Christ, which is no longer valid if Christ is not raised from the dead. It eviscerates or it empties, it makes null and void God's acceptance of the atonement. Listen to what he says in Romans 4, just listen. He says, it was written about Abraham's faith being credited to him as righteousness, the great doctrine of imputation. But then he says this, to whom, he says, but it was written for our sakes, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our justification. Our transgression Sent him to the cross as the atonement, the payment for sin. His resurrection was the vindication of our justification, the declaration before all that that atonement was accepted by the Father. If you have no resurrection, then all you have is a dead prophet who claimed to be God, as many others had as well. The resurrection is the very foundation of our justification. If not even Christ could defeat death, if not even God the Father was powerful enough to overcome death through His Son, then there is no hope. Death reigns supreme. Death is Lord. Death is Master. Death is the only end that we can expect. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then there is no Savior. It would make Christ a liar who told His disciples repeatedly that He must go to Jerusalem, He must be crucified, He must be buried, and He must rise on the third day. False hope. If there is no resurrection of the dead. It says, makes his claim to be equal to the father. A false claim. And he is a liar and merely a man if there is no resurrection of the dead. For he said, for this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. False hope. He's telling us if there is no resurrection of the dead. Then he is, does not have the authority of the father. He does not have the authority to lay down his life and take it up again. He is not the son of God. He is not the good shepherd. And their desire to stone him for making himself equal to God becomes a legitimate desire. And in fact, we would have to say they should have. If there is no resurrection of the dead, there is no affirmation that he is, in fact, the Son of God. And there is no affirmation that he is, in fact, the Messiah. And so it removes any solution to human sin if his sacrifice was not acceptable. There is no justification Let me just make another note here that this is a key deficiency then in the idea of spirituality or spiritualities trying to find God or get close to God without an understanding of the gospel. This is common in our context to speak of I'm spiritual. I'm a spiritual person. Without atonement for sin, that is an empty statement. It's an empty statement. 
Because whatever spirituality someone might conjure up on their own, whatever sense of feeling close to God that they might conjure up on their own, if there is no atonement for sin, then it's ultimately vain and futile. The ultimate end is not merely feeling closer to God when I'm out rowing in a canoe in the early hours of the morning and listening to the birds. That's nice. But it doesn't profit you anything. The issue about that faces all of us is being reconciled to God, being reconciled to Christ who is an atonement for our sin. Only in Christ is there, is, is there no condemnation. Only in Christ is there an acceptable sacrifice. Outside of Christ, there is only the expectation of judgment. Jesus himself said, The wrath of God abides on you if you are not in Christ. So our greatest need isn't to feel a closer spiritual connection to God, but it is to be reconciled to God through the atonement Christ made for our sins. That is what it means to be spiritual. To trust in Christ, to have received the Spirit of God, to be united to Christ, and to live under His Lordship. That is what it means to be spiritual. All of that's gone if there is no resurrection of the dead. For believers, if there is no resurrection of the dead, it means as well that we have no power over sin, that sin is still Lord. It is the resurrection of the dead in which Paul grounds the fact that we are no longer slaves to sin. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Now, we have died with Christ. We believe that we shall live with him. Take that off the mat. You're still a slave to your sin if there is no resurrection of the dead. Sin still reigns as supreme and Lord over your life. If there is no resurrection of dead, then there is no newness of life. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then the baptism becomes meaningless. You should stay under the water and not rise up, which would make you dead, which is the point. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then all of that becomes meaningless. You are still in your sin. If you have any spirituality or any sense of spirituality that does not deal with the issue of sin and atonement, then it is empty. It's vacuous. And then he ends it again. A third consequence, or a fourth, is here that we who have hoped in Christ, or excuse me, in verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're not in some kind of soul sleep. They're not some kind of waiting state. They have, in fact, perished. They have been succumbed to the condemnation that their sin bore. In verse 19, and if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Most to be, to be pitied. So it makes Christian hope and Christian sacrifice foolish. The simple hope that we have as Christians is that this world is not all there is, so that whatever sacrifice is made here is nothing compared to the glory that is ours in Christ, the glory that is to come, the joy that is to come at the return of Christ. Paul said, I do not consider the sufferings of this world worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. 
So our hope is not only that we won't be condemned, but that we will share in the full inheritance of Jesus Christ, the full glory of the kingdom, the full reality of our reconciliation to God. That's why Paul could say, whatever I've suffered here really doesn't matter that much because the true end of my salvation is the glory that will come in the kingdom. When all of creation that groans is done away with and the new creation comes to light and we participate in the life that God has prepared for us on it in resurrected bodies. While it is true that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, it's crucial to understand that the state that those who have died in before us are in now is not the final state. Those who are have died in the Lord, those who have gone into the grave and their body is uh, there resting and they go into the presence of the Lord, which is very much better, but is not the final state. Our hope is not merely to be in whatever state we are now when we die, but our hope as Christians is to be with the Lord on a new heavens and a new earth in a resurrected body. That is the ultimate end of our hope. Paul said, In this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, we are in this tent. We groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this purpose is God. In other words, the ultimate hope that we have as Christians, the ultimate hope of heaven is our resurrection bodies that will be conformed to the body of his glory. Christ, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. So it's hard for us to think about heaven if there is no resurrection of the dead. What does that mean? Are we just kind of floating around uh, singing hymns all day? Or Chris Tomlin songs or Christine and Getty songs and what's the other? Keith Getty songs? Or whoever else you like. Toby Mac. Is that what heaven is? Is that what heaven is? Sometimes heaven to us doesn't seem very real because it's detached from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's detached from a very material universe. We have to understand, unlike the teaching of those Greek philosophers and other religions, the material world is not bad. It was created for God's glory and we were created to live on it. And this future world that God has prepared for us is a very material universe. It is a new heavens and a new earth. And we need real bodies to live on it to know the full glories of our salvation. And that is the Christian hope. Is that I will be in a body. I won't be naked. I won't be unclothed. I won't be some wandering spirit. I won't be some kind of floating spirit in heaven. No, I will have a body. I will have a physical body that touches, that feels, that sees, that experiences, that interacts with the very physical environment that God has created for me, yet without sin. That is our hope in Christ. Even still, those who are in heaven or in the presence of God now are still with us waiting for that day. They're just waiting in a different state than we're in still here. It is the hope of the resurrection that is our hope. We want to be clothed, not unclothed. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then it makes all of that foolishness. It makes our endurance of troubles, our endurance of trials 
foolish. It makes our denial of worldly pleasures foolish. If this life is all that there is. Why would it make any sense to deny the pleasures of this world? To actually suffer for Christ here. To make any sacrifice for the gospel. What sense would that make? If there is no forgiveness of sin, then why not enjoy the pleasures of sin? Passing though they may be, they would be at least something, wouldn't they? Indulge every fleshly desire. Why not? Because it's the only desire that you're going to be able to enjoy if there is no resurrection of the dead. If there is no ultimate solution for sin, then there's no ultimate reason not to sin. Basically, Paul's argument is you're stupid to deny yourself any pleasure to make any sacrifice if the resurrection isn't true. In fact, it makes you kind of pathetic. Oh, sure, there might be practical restraints to such behavior here, cultural, social, or whatever, but there isn't ultimately any moral reason to restrain yourself. There isn't ultimately any moral or spiritual reason to make a sacrifice if there is no resurrection of the dead. There's certainly no reason to put yourself at risk to deny yourself any sense of safety, pleasure, or convenience for the sake of the name of Christ. If we've hoped in Christ in this life only, you're to be pitied. We should, in fact... Say what he will say later in verse 32. He says, If I, from human motives, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, he says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then it would be true to say, Go out and enjoy yourself in every form of pleasure that you can conceive of and get away with to the max, because that's all you have. But if there is the resurrection of the dead, then all of that is foolish. So what is the reality and light of the resurrection? And I'll mention these briefly. First of all, to deny the resurrection is absurd. To deny the resurrection is absurd. Some of the most common attempts to deny the resurrection is by denying the real death of Christ or the testimony of those who are eyewitnesses. Some say he only swooned on the cross. He didn't really die and later he mustered up enough strength to appear to the disciples. That's ridiculous. I mean the mere foolishness of the attempts to deny the resurrection actually affirm its truthfulness. That he was beaten, that he was crucified, that he endured more than what killed most men and somehow came down from the cross deceiving both the Roman soldiers and the women who came and buried him and all of them only appearing dead and then mustered up the strength after that kind of beating to go off, clean himself up and appear in a glorified state to disciples? That's stupid. It's foolish. Some say there was a mass hallucination, but that doesn't fit any kind of Understanding of hallucinations happening to so many at one time so consistently across the board and even to such a degree that all of them evenly would be willing to give their lives for the sake of what they saw, the resurrected Christ. Some say he went to the wrong grave. That in fact it wasn't that there was a resurrection but they got confused when the ladies went. It was dark, they were emotional, so on and so forth and therefore they went to the wrong grave. So there really wasn't a resurrection. There was just a mistake. Again, that's foolish in light of both the number of those who were there, the significance of the event, the plenty of time to find the right grave. All of these are vain attempts. So it's absurd actually not to believe the resurrection, but to deny the resurrection of the dead and of Christ as being raised from the dead. It is one of the most historically reliable and established facts in history. To deny the resurrection from the dead, Christ from the dead, is merely to display the predetermined commitment to unbelief 
a commitment to unbelief to justify one's pre-commitment to your own course of life. It's not that it makes any logical or historical sense. But the implications of Jesus rising from the dead are of utmost and profound significance. It is the most significant event in the history of the world that Christ raised from the dead. And it is the proof to all men that Christ will judge this world. God will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And in fact, that Christ was raised from the dead affirms his person, that he was, in fact, the Son of God. Imagine that. As you read through the Gospels, if the claims of Jesus are absurd if he cannot ultimately defeat death. They said to him in John 10, the Jews, he has a demon and is insane. And in fact, that would be the case if he was not raised from the dead. Jesus himself answered this and said, look, don't believe only on account of my words. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works. And the greatest work wasn't opening the eyes of the blind. It was raising the dead. The climactic work in John, the climactic sign, is raising Lazarus from the dead. But the ultimate climactic work of Christ is what gives meaning and foundation to that, and that is that Christ himself was raised from the dead. It means then, in fact, he is the Son of God. He is the acceptable sacrifice. He is the co-creator of the universe. He is the one through whom God's reconciling the world to himself. He is the one that's going to return in power and glory and establish his kingdom. He is the one who will judge the earth. He is the one who is the only hope of all men. He is the one who has all authority and all things are being put under his feet and made subject to him. He is the one whom Scripture claims him to be. Paul himself said in Romans 4 that he has declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead or from the dead. That verb declared could be also appointed with the meaning that he entered into his divine glory as the mediator, the God-man mediator. In other words, he was appointed as both Lord and Christ having accomplished his work. But in either case, whether it's declared or appointed, the resurrection is the crux event that shows him to be the eternal Son of God, the promised Messiah, the hope of Israel and the hope of all men. So the resurrection is absolutely essential. We mentioned this earlier, but Paul would tell them later, for as many are the promises in God, of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. So the promise of Jesus that I go and prepare a place for you and I'll come again to receive you to myself is true because the resurrection is true. The promise that he'll transform the body of our humble state in conformity to the body of his glory by the exertion of his power that he has to subject all things to himself is true because the resurrection is true. The authority and trustworthiness of scripture is true because every declaration about the person of Christ is found to be true in the reality of his works and his resurrection. And it affirms the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God because he was raised from the dead and it makes every sacrifice that we make in this world wise not foolish for what if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul then you've accomplished nothing but because the resurrection of the dead is true you can dismiss the whole world and deny it 
and gain the world to come and your part in it in Christ. Jesus again said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? If you take the elements this morning as the men come forward, then you are claiming that you believe this. You are claiming that your part is in the kingdom to come. You're claiming that his death was a death in your place, that his life is a life in your place. You're claiming that every promise of Scripture is true. You're claiming that you possess the Holy Spirit and that you follow him. You're claiming that your hope is in him alone. And I hope that is the reality of your heart. So let me pray and then the men will pass out the elements and we'll take the table together. Father, we thank you for the testimony that you've borne to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to the certainty of all of the promises that you have given to us in him. We are thankful for the reality of the forgiveness of sin that we have in him who died and rose from the dead. We are thankful for the hope that we have and certainty that he who was raised will return in power and in glory and establish his kingdom and ultimately bring us and usher us into the new heavens and the new earth where you will dwell again with men and we will forever be in your presence and resurrected body in the light of your glory. We thank you that all of these promises are true in Christ. May we rejoice and delight in them even now as we take this table. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.